Aloha and welcome. You're listening to the New Hope Legacy Podcast. Sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of a dark storm and God feels very far away. But as Pastor Trenton will share today, what if these moments of pain and struggle aren't evidence of God's absence, but rather an opportunity to experience His sufficiency? This week is part three of Famous Last Words series. Let's dive in. ending. Aren't you glad for hope today? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Angela, for the announcements. I'm excited to hear about what's going on in this church family and to see what God is doing in every life. And this uh, series that we're going through is exciting to me because we're taking a fresh look at the Easter story, not just talking about the fact that it happened, but talking through what was on our Savior's heart as he paid that price, as he gave us hope when there was no reason to hope. The story of Martha and Mary we're going to be talking about today, and it's, it's really struck me just the emotional impact of the Easter story, um, not just Jesus, but those around him, those that he influenced, those that he interacted with, and, and those that were likely there that day at the cross. I'm so glad that he was willing to pay the price for us, amen? Have you ever not been willing to pay the price for something? Maybe you were on uh, eBay and... Uh, you, you saw that one thing that you just had to have, but the bidding started sort of working its way up and up. And if I'll give you a little pro tip. Always, never, never go with a round dollar amount. You bid, you know, $50.35. That $0.35 cents might be the difference between winning or losing. Just a little pro tip for you. But every now and then I go on eBay and, and I find something that, yeah, it catches my eye and I think it'd be amazing to have that thing, but I, I just, I'm not willing to pay the price. I'm willing, I'm glad that, Jesus Christ was willing to pay the price for you and I today. I heard a story a little while back about uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, we don't have a lot of detail about the creation story, but uh, somebody was writing, you know, their perspective of how things might have gone down. And, and uh, they were talking about Adam being there in the garden and naming all these animals as they're coming through. And there's, that one's a giraffe God. Oh, that's a giraffe. Okay, Write it down. That's a giraffe. That, that one's the hippopotamus. Okay, we write it down. There's the hippopotamus. And he gets all the way through naming all the animals, and, and he notices that there's no companion for him. Everybody else is sort of paired up two by two, but Adam's there all by himself looking around and saying, uh, what's up with this, God? What, what's going on? And, and God said, well, you know, I, I can help you with that. He said, I can create for you a companion that's just going to be incredible. I mean, perfectly suited to you. She's going to be beautiful. She's going to be amazing. She's going to be gentle and kind and patient. She's going to cook and clean and never be in a bad mood. And I mean, it's just, it's going to be absolutely perfection from beginning to end. And Adam said, well, that sounds incredible, God. You know, how, how do we go about that? He said, well, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And kind of thought about it for just a minute. He said, uh, God, what, uh, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> you got to be willing to pay the price sometimes. <laughs> I'm glad that our Savior was willing to pay the price for you and I. Amen. 
Amen. All right. Well, today we're looking at the famous last words of Jesus Christ leading up to Easter Sunday. And I just want to put in a little plug in your bulletin. You should find a couple of invitation cards for Easter Sunday. Please hand those out this week. Uh, find somebody that you think could be blessed by being here that weekend and give those cards out. We want to invite people in to experience the hope that you and I have today. But today we're continuing the famous last words of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross, the things that were on his mind as he breathed his last. Today we're looking at the fourth famous last word of Jesus. And today we're going to start in Matthew chapter 27. We've been going through the book of John, but today we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 27. And I'll give you just a minute to get turned there in your Bible. If you're using a Bible app, go ahead and fire it up now. Check your uh, Twitter notifications and Instagram while you're at it. Nobody will know the difference. It'll be great. Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse number 35. Matthew 27, 35, Scripture says this, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's where we're going to finish the reading. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you forsaken me? The fourth statement of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Put yourself in the moment with me, if you would. Just envision the scene going on there at the cross. Jesus is on the cross. He's been hanging there now for about six hours, if my math is correct. This wasn't a, a fast process. He had been hanging there, enduring this agony for quite some time. The, the soldiers are off to the side, throwing their dice and gambling over his clothes, and the crowd is mocking him, and the, the chief priests and the, the rulers are hurling their accusations at him, and undoubtedly there were people passing by. Scripture even refers to those that passed by and saw him. There were people just going about their daily business, passing the Son of God there on the cross that day. There's the sweat, the heat from the sun beating down, the, the blood dripping down the cross, and if you've ever been around that kind of an environment, then you know that there's, there's a smell and even flies and everything else that accompanies the scene. And starting around noon, darkness falls across the scene. We don't know how God accomplished, accomplished this, but there was a, a supernatural event as the Son of God hung there dying. And it's in that dark moment that Jesus raises his voice in this agonized cry, why have you forsaken me? We can picture the moment 
but it's, it's difficult for me to really put myself there. I've never been crucified. I've, I've never seen anybody crucified. I've never been through the things that Jesus went through. And so there's a sense for me that it, it's, I can see it happening in my mind. I can, I can sort of imagine it, but I, I can't really put myself there in the moment because I've never been there before. It's difficult to fully relate to everything that was going on. But today we're going to take a look at a few people who faced a similar moment on their journey and maybe, maybe some times that we can relate to in our own life and learn from those times when we feel abandoned and forsaken by God. In Mark chapter number 6, many of us have heard the parable, not the parable, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in context in the story, this was a, a really busy time for Jesus and his disciples. There was the ministry, there was the miracles and the crowds and the travel from village to village and they were going and they were moving and they were doing and there was just a lot of things going on around this time. Just prior to Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist was killed. This was one of Jesus' cousins and his family, and undoubtedly not only the physical exhaustion, but also just the emotional weight of the season was bearing down on him. And he told his disciples that he was going to take them away for a period of time to get some rest or a retreat, if you will. And so they began to head off to this specific place that Jesus had in mind, and people saw them out walking out of town and must have guessed where they were going. And they ran ahead and beat them to the place. They, they apparently knew where Jesus was in the habit of going. And so they arrived there and found not a place of rest, but a crowd of over 5,000 people waiting to be healed and ministered to and fed and, and interacted with. Have you ever thought you were about to get a break and suddenly found out there was just more work left to do? I've been there. They arrived to rest and found this gigantic crowd of people waiting for them, but Jesus had compassion on them, according to Scripture. I can only imagine the frustration of his disciples. Jesus, you know how hard we've been pushing it. You know the long hours. You know all this. And do we really have to now minister to all these people? Can't we just send them home, God? I can almost imagine their reaction when they saw the crowd. And Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes, and there's this incredible miracle that's carried out. And then the disciples are sent out to pick up all the remainder, so now there's work on top of work, and the amazing miracles don't diminish the exhaustion. There was amazing things happening, but I can only imagine the state of mind that the disciples were in by the time all of this took place and was wrapped up, and here's the 12 basket full of, baskets full of food remaining. They must have been absolutely at their limit of exhaustion. And we read in Mark chapter number 6, starting in verse 43, these words, Mark 6, 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, Jesus, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dis while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, this was no afternoon paddle on your kayak out at Cuyahoga Bay. I don't know if we have any paddlers here today, but if you've ever been out on the ocean when the waves are high and the wind is blowing and it, it just gets a lot more intense than you expected, picture that in your mind and now put yourself there at about 3 o'clock in the morning. That's what the disciples were up against. 
This wasn't just a casual little relaxing paddle to another place on the shoreline. This was a battle for survival in the middle of the night. The storm was bad enough, but it came on top of their already exhausted state. And so again, I can only imagine what the disciples are going through as, as they're struggling and rowing and, and beginning to fight for their lives out on the sea there. Scripture says that this took place until around 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't know how many of you have worked until 3 o'clock in the morning, but it's, there's, there's, a, there's a darkness not just of the world, but sometimes emotionally when you're working that late at night, when you're struggling and fighting. I looked it up this week. I was curious, what does the Sea of Galilee look like in the storm? I've, I've read about the Sea of Galilee all my life, but I've never really taken the time to, to try to see what does it look like. And the Sea of Galilee, I was able to find some footage on YouTube of, of storms on the Sea of Galilee, and it's, it's impressive when the wind begins to pick up and, and whip the water into a fury and the waves begin to crash. The Sea of Galilee is seven miles across at its narrowest. That's about a quarter of the distance from the Big Island to Maui. And if you've ever been out on a boat toward the Maui Channel, then you know when you get out a ways on the water, the water changes. It's, it's not like being in close to shore. There's something different about the force of the water and the waves when you get out away from the shoreline. Three o'clock in the morning, here they are battling through the wind and the waves. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. By this point in the story, there's not even a cry for help. We don't, we don't find the disciples screaming, hoping that someone, someone will hear them. We don't see them sending off a flare gun, hoping that somebody on the shore will send help. They're, they're out on their own in the middle of the night. The wind is against them. They're too far from shore. They're too far gone at this point. Jesus is nowhere to be found. There's times in my life when it felt like the wind was against me. I don't know who all can relate, but there's been times when it feels like no matter how hard I work and how hard I push and, and strive and try to move forward, that the wind is just blowing against me no matter what I do. And the, the bills begin to pile up and the, the vehicles begin to break down and the, the tension in the relationships begins to climb. The clock is ticking, the panic starts to rise, and, and I look around and remember the people that used to be there for me, and now I realize they aren't. That's not a fun place to be in. I've faced some seasons like that in life. And I know that the Savior is out there somewhere. I have no doubt that, that he's out there, but, but I'm here. He's doing whatever he's doing. Yeah, I saw Jesus heading up the mountainside to pray, but, but I'm here in the boat, and here's the next wave about to hit. Here's the next gust of wind about to blow. Thought number one for you if you're taking notes is that serving Christ sometimes involves paddling through the night while the waves crash. Sometimes serving Christ involves paddling through the night while the waves crash. This can be part of the journey. It's not a part that we like, but it can be part of the journey that we find ourselves on. Martha, in the opening video that we just took a look at, this was the sister of... Mary from Bethany and, and Lazarus. Some folks get Mary from Bethany and Mary Magdalene mixed up between the two, but it's actually two different people. Mary Magdalene was the one that had seven demons cast out of her. Mary of Bethany was the one that came and, and washed Jesus' feet. 
They were close personal friends of Jesus, not just followers of him, but that was his inner social circle. These were the people that he came in and hung out with. He spent time with them. It wasn't just somebody that he knew in ministry. There was a personal connection to these three, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we, we pick up the story that we just heard about Martha sharing on this video. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, wrap your brain around that just for a minute. This illness is not to death. Awesome. Right on, Jesus. I'm glad Lazarus is going to be okay. And because you love them, you're saying we're going to wait two days. Help me understand this, Christ. I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm glad Lazarus is going to be okay, but, but help me understand how your love for them means that you're not going to speed up just a little bit on the journey. In fact, you're going to slow down and wait for two days knowing that your friend is ill. Help me wrap my brain around this, Jesus. This illness is not to death. We read down through just a few short verses later and suddenly Lazarus dies. John eleven twenty one. 21, Martha sees Jesus approaching and she runs out of town to meet him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died. We read these words in scripture and they're written so calmly and, and so composed and very, very factually. Jesus, if you, had not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the fact about the situation. We read them so calmly, but I don't think there was anything calm about this conversation. I have a feeling that the words were probably screamed more than stated. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And tears streaming down her face. She, she, she probably sobbed it. She may have screamed it, but I don't think there was anything calm about the statement that she made to Jesus. Where were you, Jesus? If you had been here, you could have made the difference. Now this... This we can relate to. This I can relate to. I've never been hung on a cross before. I've, I've never witnessed that level of atrocity or tragedy. But I've had some moments in my life where all I could do was just scream out to God, God, where are you? Where were you when this happened? Because I know you were somewhere, but I'm here right now. And this is the tragedy that I'm walking through. Where were you, Jesus? Probably, if we're being honest, every one of us have faced that moment at some point on the journey. If you haven't yet, then brace yourself because odds are you're going to face that moment at some point on the journey. Because thought number two for you, second fill in the blank, serving Christ often involves brokenness. Serving Christ often involves brokenness. Have you ever met someone with faith so strong that they can't admit that they have a problem? Ever met somebody like that? Don't point fingers, no sidelong glances, please. I've met a few people like that. 
I don't know if we have any Monty Python fans here in the house today, but there's a scene in Monty Python where, where there's two knights fighting each other, and one of them swings his sword and cuts the other one's arm off, and he says, there, I've won. And the other guy says, no, you haven't. He said, but your arm's off. He goes, no, it isn't. And they go on fighting, and there's, there's pieces being cut off of this guy, and every time an, another part of his body is removed, he goes, no, I'm fine. Let's keep on fighting. You know, he's just denying there's any problem. I've met some people that approach faith like that. They're, they're, they're dying. They have a fever of 150 degrees. And no, I feel fine. I feel fine. Faith, not fear. Everything's awesome. I don't know if you've ever interacted with somebody like that, but I, I saw a good sort of illustration of that recently. I was driving up Kaiminani, and I, I looked up the hill. There's this truck coming toward me around a corner. And, and I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you know that something's wrong, but you can't quite tell what it is. And I, I look up as I'm seeing this truck come around the corner. It took me a minute to, to wrap my brain around what I was seeing. It was this big lifted truck. I don't know what kind, but, but it had this huge lift kit underneath it and big off-road tires. And, and I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head as I'm driving. I'm going, something is just not quite right. And I see this cloud of smoke coming out behind the truck. Now, that's not that unusual to see a big truck with smoke coming out the back. But as it gets closer, I realize the whole truck is sort of racked over to the side. And then as I get a little closer, I realize why it's racked over to the side is he's got this gi these gigantic off-road tires, except one of them's missing. He's got three tires and one bare rim, and he's barreling down Kaiminani, spraying sparks and smoke out the back end. And here he is driving along without a care in the world as if nothing's wrong. I've met some people who go through life that way. Their world is on fire. Their, their tire is down to a bare rim and there's sparks flying and they're saying, no, I have faith. Everything's fine. It's all fine. I'm fine. The world is fine. They can't admit, they can't admit that Lazarus is dead and buried. They can't admit that the waves have crashed on them enough times that now there seems to be more water in the boat than out of it. But their faith is so strong, we, just, we can't even admit that there is an issue. Martha didn't seem to have that problem. She gave voice to her pain. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. He's dead, Jesus. Faith is great. Belief is great. But he's dead. I helped bury him myself. I can show you where his body is. He's dead, Jesus. Sounds a lot like Jesus there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's there, he's hanging, he's in pain, and no amount of faith, no amount of belief can take away or negate the amount of pain and agony that he's in. This is reality, this is the moment that I'm in, Father. There the disciples sit in the boat, gripping the gunnels as they plow through another crashing wave at three o'clock in the morning, Jesus nowhere to be seen. There Martha stands with a look of accusation on her face in grief, as Jesus approaches, there the Son of God hangs on the cross, dying. Now, by human standards, any of these situations that we've just looked at would be a story ender. End of chapter, Lazarus is dead and buried. The storm is in the process of sinking the boat. There's no way to make it back to shore on time. We all know how the cross ends. It ends in death. That's what it's designed to do, and it's very good at it. The end. Story is done. Good night, kids. Have a great sleep, and I'll see you in the morning.
I was reading a story to my son Kavika recently. I really like our bedtime story times together. We sit there and snuggle up and read through stories. We're going through uh, Dr. Doolittle right now, the originals. I don't know if we've got any Dr. Doolittle fan, but we're reading through the, the original Dr. Doolittle books. And recently, we were reading through a book together, and we came to this crescendo in the story, and, and I don't remember what the crisis was. There was cannibals involved, if I recall correctly, and it was, it was intense, and the hero was really having himself a problem, and the chapter ended. Kavika kind of looks at me, and I can see him just kind of almost shiver with excitement. Daddy, Daddy, what's going to happen? I said, oh, you'll have to find out. Was he going to be okay? I said, oh, you'll you'll have to find out. And he started to get himself just a little bit worked up. And I said, buddy, buddy, it's okay. It's okay. I promise you he's going to be okay because there's more to the story. There's another chapter yet to be continued. And so I know he's going to be all right because the story continues. I don't know exactly what's about to happen, but I know the hero is going to make it through because there's more remaining to the story. And here's what we find in these moments of brokenness that you and I face on the journey is that the crisis that should be a story ender simply becomes the mechanism to reveal more of God's power and love as the next chapter begins. Because there is always, always, and I'll say again, always another chapter in Christ. Now, I have a confession for you that I misquoted a verse just a little while ago. Maybe some of you caught it if you were following along in your Bible. Mark chapter 6, back in verse 45, I'm not going to misquote it this time, but see if you can catch the difference between what I read a moment ago and what we're about to read. Mark 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Did you catch it? Did you see it? There's just a few short words that make the difference between what I just read and and what I had shared previously. This little phrase, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw them. I don't know how. He's on the shore. In fact, it says he went up on the mountainside to pray. He's not even now at the shoreline. He's up on the mountain praying. They're out miles from shore on the boat trying to paddle to the other side. The night has fallen. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's dark There's a storm cloud overhead. The wind is blowing. The rain is pounding. And he saw them. I don't know how, but he saw them. And he came to them walking on the water. If we continue reading through the chapter, Jesus comes walking on the water, and and now they see him as he approaches. Now they hear him as his voice begins to speak. But see, the next chapter didn't begin when they saw Jesus. Their next chapter had begun the moment that his foot stepped off the shore and onto the water. Because although they couldn't see him, he saw them. I want to tell you today that your next chapter begins when God moves, not when you see him. 
Your next chapter begins when God moves, not when you see him. We go back to John chapter 11. Martha has had this moment with Jesus, probably screaming in his face is the way I imagine it. She goes back home into the village and, and Jesus waits there, again, waiting in the middle of this tragedy. He waits outside the village. Now Mary comes out to speak with him. She also accuses him. She, she shares this intense grief that's on her mind. And John eleven thirty five 35 was always my favorite memory verse growing up. Somebody would ask me to quote a memory verse. It was John 35, automatic. John eleven thirty five. 35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Here's a pro tip for you. If you want an easy memory verse, somebody says, can you quote scripture? Absolutely. John eleven thirty five. 35. Two words, Jesus wept. Say it with me. Here's a memory verse for you. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Hey, there you go. Memory, scripture memorization in Sunday morning service. Here's the thing that stood out to me, though, as I was reading through the story this week, is that Jesus wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He knew what the next chapter contained. He knew how the story was going to end. He was not weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping with Mary. There's a phrase that I've heard bounced around a lot on social media lately and even shared by some folks that I know that facts don't care about your feelings. Has anybody heard that one before? Facts don't care about your feelings. There were some facts about this situation. The fact of the matter was Lazarus was dead. This was the fact. It was established reality. Lazarus was dead. But the fact was that Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. And here's the other fact that I find so beautiful in this story. The fact was that Jesus cared about Mary's pain and grief. Facts don't always care about your feelings, but the Savior does. He wept. We continue down in John eleven, forty-three to 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Just previous in this story, you'll recall that he said this sickness is not to death. And I grappled with that one growing up. I'd read this story and Jesus talking to his disciples. Oh, yeah, I heard Lazarus is sick, but it's, it's not to death. And then Lazarus dies. And it took me a long time of wrestling with the story to try to come to grips with that because the fact of the matter was Lazarus died. It was a fact. But the fact was that the illness, the sickness, did not lead to death. But for Lazarus, it led through death. See, in our human understanding, in, in the way that we see and perceive and experience the world, death is the end of the story. There is no more after death. Death happens and, and, and that's it to our physical human understanding. We don't see any hope beyond death. We don't see anything continuing once something has died. I walked out yesterday in our driveway with my three-year-old to work on the truck and, and there was a dead bird in the driveway. And I saw him walk over and, and was really curious to see what he would do with it. Thank God he didn't try to put it in his mouth. You never quite know with that one. 
But I watched him as a three-year-old sort of looking at and trying to understand the concept of death, of this bird laying there on the driveway that's never going to get up and run around again. That's how we see it when death enters the story. But there's a difference when the Savior is involved. Thought number three for you if you're taking notes. Our brokenness is not evidence of God's absence but an opportunity to see his sufficiency. Our brokenness is not evidence of God's absence, but an opportunity to see his sufficiency. Jesus on the cross cried out, why have you forsaken me? This is the fourth last word that he spoke. He didn't deny the pain. He didn't deny the the soul-crushing weight of the guilt of sin resting on his shoulders. He didn't deny any of the reality of what he was facing. But he was willing to endure the pain and push through it because he knew that there was another chapter about to begin on the other side of the brokenness. How did Jesus know that there was another chapter? Because with God, there always is. This is just how it works with God. There was a hidden cry of triumph, in fact, in these words that Jesus spoke. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that was taken directly from Psalm chapter 22. This was a a song that Jewish children and, and Jewish people would have memorized and known. They would have been familiar with this growing up. Psalm Chapter 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is the song that Jesus is quoting lyrics from as he hangs on the cross. And often we just stop right there. We stop with the anguish and the pain And we give up and we accept the fact that that's the end of the story. Now, Jesus only quoted the opening stanza of the song, if you will. But he was pointing us toward hope even in the middle of his agony. See, there's more to the song than just the opening verse. There's more to the song than just the beginning that Jesus quoted. And this psalm was, in fact, written prophetically about the Messiah There's more to it than the line that he just quoted. See, the psalm continues on, and we're going to pick it up in Psalm 19. It's gone through all the pain, all the agony, all the, God, where are you? This is where I am, and where are you, God? But we continue reading down through Psalm 22. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but but listen as verse 19 picks up. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the declaration that Jesus is making on the cross. Not finishing the story saying, God, where are you? But pointing us back to the fact that the God who sent him to this earth, his father who loved him, saw him and loved him and cared about him. And the story ended far differently than the way that it appeared at that moment. I don't know what your battle is today. I don't know what pain you're going through in your life. I don't know what your moment of agony is that you're facing. I don't know how long you've been paddling your boat through the storm in the middle of the night or how long you've waited for Jesus to heal your sick brother. I don't know all those details about your journey. But I do know one thing with full confidence is that the storm that you're facing today is not the end of the story. It's not the last chapter. There's another chapter yet to be written. And the Savior who has walked with you and who loves you and who gave his life for you sees you right now wherever you are. Whatever that place is in your life that you're facing and you look around and say, God, here I am and where are you? You may not be able to see him right now, but I promise you he sees you where you are right now. He feels your pain. He's not oblivious to your struggle. He cares about the things that are weighing on your heart right now. And his power is about to be revealed in your life, not because of an absence of pain, but through the middle of it. This is how it works with the God who sees us. There's another chapter about to be written in your life. If you don't know the Savior today, if you don't know the God who sees you, if, if you've never even had that conversation with him, then I want to invite you today to cry out to him. Don't hold back. He can handle your most raw, real feelings. Even if it's anger and accusation, his shoulders are broad and he can handle it. But I want to invite you right now to just begin that conversation with Jesus and say, God, here's where I am and I don't see you. And it hurts, and I've been struggling and working, and I don't see hope. But I see that you're faithful in your word. I see those that have, have found truth in you, and that there's another chapter been written in their life. And so, God, I'm inviting you to write the next chapter in my life. And I believe in faith that you see me right now where I am. And so, God, I ask you to be my Savior. I need you to save me right now. I surrender my life to you. 
I put my life in your hands and I'm choosing to trust you, not just to remove the pain, but I'm trusting you here in the middle of my pain right now. I'm choosing to trust your love for me that there's another chapter yet to be written when this chapter ends. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to talk with you after service. If you're listening online and, and you're in that place right now, I want to ask you to send a message in, instant message, email, go to our website, get in touch with us somehow, fill out a connect card. But, but we want to walk with you through this storm as a church family because the God who sees you has put the body of Christ here to walk with each other through those storms, to strengthen and encourage each other. We can't carry the burden for you. We can't calm the storm in your life, but we will be there to walk with you and point you to the one who's about to write the next chapter of your life story. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are the God who sees us. And I thank you that you've been faithful through every storm that I've ever faced, every tragedy, every grief, every moment of pain. You have been faithful, Lord. And so today, again, I choose to trust you that the things that would, by all rightful accounts, end the story, humanly speaking, that because of you, there's another chapter yet to be written. And today, Lord, as a church family, we choose to trust you. We don't deny the struggle. We don't deny the storm. But we choose to trust you even in the middle of it. And I ask you this week, Lord, for those that are hurting, those that have begun to lose hope, those that have already long ago lost hope, Lord, I pray that you would show yourself present. We know that this, the change in their season doesn't change when they see you, but it has already changed because you see them. And so I pray that you would show yourself strong in each situation. And I thank you that there's nothing that we could face, no storm too large that is outside of your ability to bring redemption, to bring healing, and to bring hope through the middle of it. I pray that you'd bring us back next week to continue learning and growing in you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The prayer team is going to be here at the front to pray with you if you need prayer today. Go with God. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us here on the New Hope Legacy podcast again today. Easter is just around the corner. And with that said, invite your friends, family, and join us for Easter service at 8.30 a.m. If you're new, we welcome you and we can't wait to meet you. Have a wonderful week and God bless.